the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Oh, boy. Great to have you with us. It is a Thursday, 22nd day of June. Forgot yesterday was the longest day of the year, wasn't it? And uh, we're going to try not to make today's show sound like the longest radio show (laughs) of the year. Though we are going to continue our dialogue from yesterday related to the impact of so-called artificial intelligence. Yesterday, we talked about a church in Germany that over the weekend used AI to actually create the sermon. And of course, that raises all kinds of questions about theological accuracy and discernment and so on and so forth. Well, now on today's program, we're going to be visiting with James Joukowsky, Senior Policy Analyst in Technology and Innovation at Americans for Prosperity, who has some thoughts regarding the recent visit to the Bay Area by President Biden and his remarks regarding AI, and whether or not in our concern to make sure that it doesn't become too disruptive, perhaps in a fashion in which some aspects of social media has, while at the same time being careful not to stifle innovation too much, especially if we're running around in a panic here in the United States, and meanwhile, other countries are going full throttle. So how do we learn the distinction between how much is too much? Where do the guardrails need to be established? We'll be talking about that a little bit later on in tonight's program. I want to lead tonight, however with word that House Republicans have failed to so far overturn President Biden's veto of the Congressional Review Act. Now, the act, which would have ended Biden's student loan forgiveness program, passed the House and the Senate earlier this year before the president vetoed the resolution. Yesterday, the House failed to get the majority vote to overturn that veto. Biden's student relief plan now faces the Supreme Court, which is expected to make a ruling on the loan forgiveness later on this week, although it may be some time before we know the final decision. So what of this notion? We we hear talk about ideas related to education. Some would like to argue that it ought to be free and available for all, similar to, say, um, primary and, and secondary grade education. But now that a new bill has been introduced by Senator Bernie Sanders that essentially calls for making all public colleges and universities tuition-free. While that sounds like a great idea, just how practical is it? And is free ever really truly free? Well, some insights on this important public policy question. We are joined by the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, our dear friend Pete Peterson. Pete, always a delight to have you with us. 
Uh, great to be back with you, Craig. You know, you're you're right there, ground zero in education at one of the best schools in the entire state, in fact, the entire nation, Pepperdine University, and the notion of saying, hey, let's make education free for all, that sounds nice and idealistic and altruistic, but as you and I know, the old adage, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and I have to wonder when Bernie Sanders says, don't worry, it's going to be free, we'll pay for it through tax taxes, and then we look at the amount of burden that's being carried by many students through student loan in the trillions of dollars, this is all going to magically just kind of come together? Or if it indeed gets passed, are we talking about a significant increase that all of us will face in paying taxes in order to foot the bill for the free lunch that is never really free? That's right, Craig. And, I, you know, there are a couple different issues with this proposed uh, policy by Senator Sanders. One, of course, is the financial or economic impact of uh, billions, if not eventually trillions of dollars uh, spent in support of the program. But the other, and this is particularly important for people of faith to understand, is that these kinds of policies, whether it's Senator Sanders or uh, others that have been proposed even here in the state of California, are really not intended uh, to support faith-based institutions. Um, the, when you look at the, the Sanders legislation and, and some of the others, what you see is uh, really focused support on uh, secular public uh, colleges and universities. And so you really get into a place where if you cared about really providing uh, choice and support for students to enter the college of uh, of their choosing, and especially for Christian students, Jewish students, otherwise, uh, if they wanted to get this kind of so-called public support, uh, you can forget about that happening in uh, Christian and faith-based uh, colleges and universities. So the, the money aspect notwithstanding, which is, of course, a, a major issue here, so I'm not trying to downplay that at all, but right. might this be a better discussion where we'd be talking about something such as a voucher-type program? I mean, if we're going to be giving away money, right. uh, let's at least say parity across the board that a student who is facing economic challenges and is given the opportunity to go to public education for free, but right. might say, you know, there are values that are important that I want to have intrinsic to my my higher level of education here, and so I choose to right. go to a Christian college or university, and that essentially uh, almost being taxed in doing so because public would be free under this proposal, but private schools and and, and universities would not. So, is is a voucher type approach within reason? Perhaps a greater way to achieve parity in this. Well, I have to say, I think we're actually approaching the issue, um, as with with so many things. Uh, Senator Sanders actually has his finger on something, which which is the issue of the increasing cost of higher education, which even as someone working at a uh, graduate school here at Pepperdine University, uh, the studies all show that the costs of higher education are outstripping inflation. And in that, um, if the policy is to make college more affordable, 
the providing of so-called free tuition support is actually going to have the opposite effect. Uh, what we have seen over the course of the last few years as federal support for student loans has increased is you've seen a concomitant increase in tuition. And there really seems to be this um, not just correlation, but a causation effect that when people get more money to spend on college education, as you would see in any other marketplace, uh, colleges and universities are happy uh, to increase their tuition. And so, uh, again, this, this is kind of the socialist mindset which Bernie Sanders brings to the table that if he sees a problem in which costs are too high, he thinks simply, well, if we just provide people with more money to buy that product, uh, people are going to be able to do it. When actually, most economists would say that providing people with more money to afford the product, in this case, uh, college or university education, is only going to further drive up the costs of that product. And there are certainly institutions that see this as an opportunity to say, hey, there's going to be more dollars circulating out there. Let's do what we can to grab our share. Now, it might be with very positive thoughts in mind that we'd like to be able to expand our university. So the more students, the more cash flow. We can hire more teachers. We can build new buildings. We can add new new educational programs. So so there certainly can be sort of the the, the positive approach. But as as you're pointing out, as Unfortunately, so often when there is free, quote unquote, money to be had, there will be those that will say, let's be good entrepreneurs and see what we can do to get our hands on that. And the notion of more cash circulating out there for education, then, as you're suggesting, might end up having just the opposite impact of what supposedly is intended here. Yeah, that's absolutely right. One of my dear friends and a longtime faculty member uh, here at the Policy School is Gordon Lloyd, who is an expert on the American founding and the Constitutional Convention. And he always said, Pete, in public policy, there's a high road and a low road. And you've just outlined the high road, uh, which is, you know, we want to make college accessible to all uh, who seek to get higher education. We should we should say that not everybody does. Uh, less than 40% of Americans over the age of 22 have a college education. So the majority of Americans do not. But there is a low road. And I think that that awareness that college and universities have that uh, this could provide them with more customers who can pay more. I mean, Craig, just imagine if the federal government said, we're going to give everyone a $10,000 check, but they have to spend it on a car because cars are getting too expensive. Well, guess what we're going to see to the pri- with the price of cars in the next six months? <laughs> I, I know exactly what's right. going to happen. Automakers are going to say, we're going to add a couple of features here, and we're going to boost the price because there's a lot of cash out there, and we want our share of it. That's right. and I mean, that's just economics, which, again, is not a subject that Senator Sanders is is quite proficient in. Um, so keeping in mind that the basic economics here, uh, both people of faith regarding who would 
benefit from this, and and chances are it will not be faith-based colleges and universities, but also just if we're looking to really address a real problem, which are the rising costs of higher education, uh, providing people with more money could have the, the opposite effect. Pete, these are the kinds of issues that public policy experts grapple with every day, and when there is good, sound analysis of the pluses and the minuses and trying to better understand what the best route is to take to address issues of public concern and challenges out there, whether we're talking about better roads, better jobs, better education, it's these kind of public policy issues every day that are so critically important to be addressed by people that that have the ability to really fairly look at all sides. And, of course, that is what a great education provides, a place like Pepperdine School of Public Policy. I, I want to just have you take a moment, if you would, please, for listeners that are thinking, you know, for myself, for my son, my daughter, thinking about ways in which we can have a positive impact on these kinds of critical everyday issues to kind of impact to a positive outcome. Uh, Life in California, life in America is just what we like to do. This is where our heartbeat is. Spend a moment, if you would, and kind of give us a, a bit of a primer on what is available in a education, specifically in the arena of public policy at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Well, thanks, Craig. Yeah, we offer this Master of Public Policy degree, uh, and even though there are over 200 of these uh, programs across the United States, we are very unique in the sense that, one, uh, we're one of the very few of these programs based at a Christian university, and two, we are one that, that really does meld this approach to public policy, which understands the importance of free market economics and America's founding principles. And when you see major policy mem- uh, makers like a Senator Bernie Sanders who can be so far wrong on basic economic principles, we really do need to prepare our next generation of policymakers, advisors, uh, and political leaders with these important skills of policy analysis and persuasion. And that's what we do here at the Policy School. Our students serve all over the state and all over the country and even all over the world in foreign service, intelligence agencies, and so forth. But I know a number of our alumni who work today on Capitol Hill and are fighting uh, the policies that are being put forth by people like Bernie Sanders uh, because they've been grounded in our education that focuses, again, on uh, founding principles, the importance of faith, and free markets. And as you and I have discussed many times down through the years, there are oftentimes these very difficult questions, such as the one we've posed today, but seldom easy answers. But having people that are schooled in all aspects of looking at the various angles and really helping to craft public policy that is fair, reasonable, makes sense, and also makes economic sense, critically important. And how lucky we are to have such a quality school, not only just here in California, but in such a gorgeous campus, such a gorgeous location. So if you're interested in this, or your son and daughter is, I urge you to get more information. Check out um, the Pepperdine School of Public Policy online by going to publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Our thanks to Pete Peterson, who is the Dean of
of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy for offering some insights on this very important topic. And undoubtedly, we're going to continue to grapple with the issue of higher education and the associated costs for some time to come. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the program. 23 minutes after the hour, President Biden met with artificial intelligence experts here in San Francisco during his recent visit. Biden telling reporters he wants to hear directly from experts on the possibilities and risks associated with advancing AI technology, indicating his administration is, quote, committed to safeguarding the rights of Americans as the technology progresses. The visit, of course, comes as many in Washington are scrambling to regulate the technology. As you know, on yesterday's program, we talked about AI writing a sermon and creating an entire Sunday service that took place over the weekend in Germany. So what of the bigger question of AI and how do we begin to understand the risks and rewards and balance the two? Well, to shed some light on this question, we're joined now by James Chernowski. Jim is the Senior Policy Analyst in Technology and Innovation at Americans for Prosperity. Mr. Chernowski, thank you so much for carving some time out of your schedule to be with us today. You know, we've been hearing so much about AI. In fact, I read an article earlier today that uh, Paul McCartney of the Beatles is now trying to sort of of uh, calm folks down, expressing concern that AI was used recently to write a new Beatles song. And so while I think we're all fascinated by the technology, it does raise questions. But the bigger concern, perhaps, is in our effort to try to understand it and, and gauge the impact of AI on everything from day-to-day American life to business and employment and all of that, how do we go about balancing encouraging the advancement because it does help push the country forward while at the same time not, not necessarily allowing it to run wild? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Thanks for having me. And I think that ultimately, when we're looking at this very promising technology in artificial intelligence, what it comes down to is basically making sure that we have a, a least restrictive means approach to regulating it to make sure that the rules that are in place go and mitigate against the potential and clearly defined harms that can be associated to AI um, without going and overstretching it. Because when you do that, what you end up happening there is is that you, you basically, um, you know, hamstring the technology and undermine its development. Because if you're going to expose them for liability or if you're going to go and make it where you have to get a license or something, um, you're just going to hinder the development of the technology, broadly speaking. So, you know, that's not necessarily the way that we want to be doing it, especially in the context of knowing that we have adversaries out there that are also investing very heavily in this technology that will not go and uh, restrain themselves in such ways. And that means that, um, you know, you might be exposing yourself to being overtaken in that race to, uh, you know, be the first to kind of really dominate and, and truly revolutionize how this technology is being deployed out there. So I think that, you know, we can uh, have a better balance that goes and recognizes that there might be risks, but 
it's about right-sizing the regulation to, to go and actually meet that moment, if you will. And, and I suppose fundamentally, there's always in new tech some degree yeah. of risk and reward that needs to be weighed. I mean, if, if we turn back the clock 100 years, for example, I would suspect those that were looking at the, the outlandish idea of adding sound to movies while concentrating on what this would mean for improving the quality of entertainment must at some point also had some dialogue along the lines of, gee, we've got a lot of leading actors and actresses today who speak with very thick accents, but silent movies, who cares? Now, once the movies begin to talk, that could put them out of business. So understanding the impact of changing tech is something that's not new for us. I I guess what's new here is that perhaps it's coming at a faster pace than what we're really able to absorb. Do you think that's true? In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. I think that AI, the funny thing with AI is that it's actually been part of our lives for longer than we realized. It's just it's never been deployed in the way that we're seeing it right now, right? So when we're talking about the sermon that was crafted with AI or the Beatles song that was crafted with AI, that's not necessarily the way that AI has been used in the past. Like, it's been internalized for businesses in terms of streamlining their work product or, you know, with social media for figuring out how they want to guide algorithms to promoting content to you. So it's a little bit different use cases that have evolved over the course of time, but it's always been there for at least the last 10 plus years. So it's always been there. Now we're just seeing it in a more pronounced fashion when we're talking about ChatGPT or we're talking about, you know, Google Bard or Search Labs. Um, there's some really amazing things that are coming out of that. Um, and I think that, that that's a net positive. We want to encourage that. And it's really, to your point, and it's most certainly an educational exercise here. We're connecting with consumers uh, and people so that way we can go and, and kind of explain what AI is. And more importantly, in the context of the conversations that we're seeing happen right now, what AI is not. Because there are a lot of people that think, you know, they're, they're, they're having AI doomerism, if you will. They, they think about the Terminator situation or iRobot and technology gone wild going to destroy civilization. And, you know, not too long ago, we had a letter from 350 people um, signing on saying like, oh, you know, AI could go and be a threat to the extinction of the human race. And that's just, you know, rhetorically speaking, that's insane. Technology is incredibly powerful, obviously. But... Even your most advanced experts in AI can't give you a, a consensus timeline for those kinds of outcomes. And while that's always a possibility, it's also not very helpful for the discussion. I think that you have to be able to couch it better to reflect the actual risks so that we can properly develop it without going and, you know, hindering ourselves by engaging in these, you know, fantastical uh, kinds of yeah, there are degrees of which you feel as if somebody spent entirely too much time you know, watching sci-fi movies. That said, you know, tr- trying to balance things like, for example, the president talked about addressing bias and disinformation, which when I heard that remark, I thought, well, gee, that horse left the barn decades ago. I mean, if we want to talk about bias and disinformation on the web, for example, it, it was almost baked in practically from the beginning. It is more yeah. of this perhaps setting aside some of the unfounded 
unfounded fears, that, you know, based on, again, uh, too much consumption of, <laughs> of sci-fi movies. Is a lot of this, in your opinion, uh, James, being driven by people that look at this and perceive it to be a threat, not so much the existence of humanity, but a threat to the workplace and therefore are pushing back on it because it represents perhaps a, a pretty significant leap forward. And we just don't know what that might mean for me personally. And so as a result, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing back out of ignorance and fear. I'm sure that there, to your point before about new technology, even a hundred years ago, that's always been a thematic thing. When radio was around, when TV first came around, when video games became popular, people fear what they don't know or what they don't understand, and therefore they'll start attributing a lot of things to it that they otherwise want. And we're even seeing that to some degree with social media, too. And I think that, that's not, again, that's just not very helpful for the conversation. I think that when we're trying to figure out, you know, what are the actual risks, um, et cetera, like that stuff that can certainly carry out over time, we can be very responsible about having that conversation. But it requires us, you know, taking a step back and actually, you know, pressing pause in terms of trying to do something. Because right now there's always a pressure to do something. Uh, members of Congress, you know, they want to do something. Sometimes it's out of fear. Sometimes it's out of, like, sheer protectionism, too. To your point about being worried about the fundamental changes that could happen with AI, right? I mean, it can transform our workforce in pretty astounding ways. That could also mean job loss for some people, um, you know, in, in their mind. And that's... That could be true, um, but in many ways, AI, one of the common misconceptions is that they think that it's just going to be this job-replacing, job-killing technology, and that's not necessarily true at all. Um, as a lawyer in New York found out the hard way, ChatGPT uh, can't do your legal briefing yeah. research for you. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I saw that story. <laughs> yeah, and as, as kids are finding out increasingly at school... Uh, you know, you can't go and use ChatGPT for your homework assignments either. Uh, sometimes they leave the prompts in there, too, which is just really priceless. Yeah, and, and I want to mention for listeners as a bit of a backgrounder uh, why I'm laughing. As James Chernowski has made a reference to, it's not necessarily a good tool for lawyers. There was a lawyer who, uh, you know, they get busy and, and writing legal briefs can be enormously time-consuming. It can take weeks and months trying to put an argument together. And, of course, you've got to do a lot of research into case law and cite references. And so he, he decided to use ChatGPT to write the, the legal brief. And uh, what became problematic is that as the judge began looking at all of the case history that had been cited, uh, soon began to realize that none of these cases existed and that literally ChatGPT made much of it up, including even the case law. So there can be a way in which it kind of goes off the rails. And we understand that having safeguards in place, guardrails in place is important. And when we come back after a break, I want to talk about that and also maybe help people understand a bit, a bit of a reset on some of the paranoia that anytime something new emerges, there is the potential risk for there being great change. I suppose a century ago, if you were in the horsewhip business uh, and you saw this newfangled thing called the motor car coming out and 
and wondered what was Henry Ford up to with this Model T business and maybe began to realize, gee, if they start riding around in cars and they're not riding horses anymore and I make uh, horse whips, buggy whips for a living, I might be put out of business. So do you look at that with fear and trepidation or do you say, gee, what is it about this new emerging technology that maybe I can find a niche area in which I can, instead of looking at it as an enemy, instead befriend it and make even more money. We'll talk about that. And the other concern, too, that I'd love to get James Chernowski's input on, and that is the notion, you hinted at this, James, that there is a propensity to want to hurry up and step in and do something, especially amongst members of Congress. And I have to wonder whether or not Congress is necessarily most ideally suited to be having these discussions, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. James Chernowski with us today, Senior Policy Analyst in Technology and Innovation at Americans for Prosperity. We take a brief time out. This is not AI-generated. This is actually Craig Roberts, back with more in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. By the way, interesting to note, I just looked up the the case that uh, uh, James Chernowski and I were referring to where a law firm used chat GPT to write a legal brief. And in doing so, uh, you know, it simply created case law and references completely out of thin air. Well, now, today, the federal judge in the case has imposed a $5,000 fine on the lawyer and law firm. And I guess at the end of the day, they're probably lucky they didn't wind up losing their law licenses over it. But it raises, of course, again, questions related to uh, the power of AI and the necessity to try to understand it and and create reasonable guardrails and safeguards. James Chernowski with us, Senior Policy Analyst in Technology and Innovation at Americans for Prosperity. Now, you know, you made the reference earlier to the notion of people being afraid of new tech and and the potential threat to jobs, things of that sort. And, you know, in the history books, you can read about in the early days of radio, for example, people demanding Congress act and stop this thing from radio taking place because they felt that the magnetic waves generated by radio transmitters could play across the bed springs as you sleep at night and and have ill effects on one's health. Of course, complete utter nonsense, but it shows the way we tend to be overreactive to emerging technologies that we simply don't understand. But James, my question for you is this. As the president has talked about, we need to get Congress to look into this. There needs to be consumer protection groups that are going to meet and have discussions. Um, Anybody that's ever watched Congress in hearings, for example, with Mark Zuckerberg or others, and, uh, you know, I want to be fair here that I'm in the same age category, but when you see the average age in the United States Senate, for example, at 65, I'm wondering, based on some of the hearings that I've witnessed, if this is necessarily the right group to be making these kinds of decisions that could stifle the ad, the, the advancement of technology, because it's not only so new, but if you and I, who are a little bit aware of it, are, are trying to struggle to understand and imagine people that are, you know, octogenarians in the United States Senate that are trying to understand it, do we run the risk of, of losing our footing in terms of of global competition if we overreact and if it's Congress that's making these decisions? 
Yeah, 100%. I think you're raising all the right points. I, I will give credit to Congress in the sense of, you know, since those early day hearings of, of social media with Mark Zuckerberg, the famous We Shall Act Senator uh, line that he gave back then, uh, Congress has certainly, I would say, increased its, its uh, mental muscle on, on understanding technology uh, since then, which is a good thing. Like, I think that we should want Congress to be better informed about the things that it is attempting to regulate uh, if it is going to try to do that, because uh, the last thing you want to do is have people trying to go and create rules around things that they have absolutely no idea about. So. I'd rather take something over nothing. Um, but I, I do think that this is why I enjoy working in this space as I am, because to your point, yeah, when the average age in Congress is 65, when you're looking at our president, who is an octogenarian and would be 86, I think it was, if he were to go and live out a second term as a United States president, it, you know, this is a guy who was around before <laughs> before the Internet was even like a mainstream thing. and. Um, you know, they just use it in a fundamentally different way than perhaps my, my age demographic and the future generations that are more digitally native use that technology. So that's actually a very real threat that you identified where it's like if people that are not as closely connected to the technology in the same kinds of ways are the ones responsible for the rule writing, and especially if it's being done by Congress, it will take us decades to go and fix that mess, legislatively speaking. Um, if they go and they pass bad rules because Congress is not known for being nimble and fast and doing anything these days. So I think that that's actually the biggest reason why we don't want Congress being the one that's putting down any kind of hard law restrictions and regulations on AI. I think that if you want to go and encourage the kinds of things that we talked about with balance and, and trying to promote innovation and protecting consumers, I think that that relies on a soft law approach, which is setting you know best practices and and standardizations and trying to get compliance across the companies in that voluntary way. Um, that's usually a better model that you can try to do. And then also, you know, I think that sometimes because it is so new, uh, so new with the technology, people think that you have to, you know, craft up something new and fancy for the new piece of technology when the reality is is that sometimes the old dog actually can go and apply with the new tricks over here. Like you don't have to go and, you know, reinvent the wheel here. Uh, the FTC, the DOJ, Equal Opportunity Employment Office, and I forget what the other agency was. They all had like a joint statement a while back that said that they would be enforcing existing laws on companies that are, you know, using this technology. And that's absolutely right. Like there are existing laws on the books that these companies have to follow that can be applied to them. It's just more about now, you know, kind of uh, getting the government up to speed in terms of understanding what this technology is what it's doing, how it actually, you know, interla overlaps with the existing laws that are out there. So I think that if we're going to be spending time figuring out what good looks like in this space, that's where the energy should be focused. I'm trying to educate Congress, regulators, and consumers in terms of what the technology can do, what it can't do, and how the technology is supposed to respect existing laws that are already on the books. So it, it sounds like what you're suggesting is not only a warning about uh, some sense of a rust judgment here, number one, until we have better understanding, but but there's another dynamic, and, and I, I, I want to keep this in proper perspective, which is why I'm bringing this up, because I think part of a balanced discussion needs to include this, and that is that whatever new emerging technology might be out there, isn't there always a capacity for it to be misused or abused? I mean, for example, um, we're learning about the ways in which ChatGPT can help you craft an email or a letter to a loved one. Okay, 
What's to yeah. prevent somebody from using ChatGPT to write a paper that a student is required to do? Now, I look at that and say, well, yeah, there's a degree to which that's a technological question, but isn't there also a degree, James? And again, I don't want to I don't want to shift the conversation too drastically, but it, but it also I think suggests yeah. here that part of the dynamic, part of the conversation needs to include the notion that anytime something new and shiny comes along, somebody might look at it and say how can I put this to use for nefarious purposes? So is there also a dynamic that says, look, a student can use ChatGPT to write a paper and then present it as if it's their own work as much as they could pay somebody on the side, you know, find the smart kid in class and, you know, slip them a C note to write the paper for you. At the end of the day, I don't know that that's as much a technological question as it is a moral question, in which case, you know, almost anything, as they say, can be used for good or for evil. Yeah. No, I think that that's a perfectly fair uh, point to raise. I think the other technology where this can be very clearly seen as in cryptocurrency. Um, the technology itself, I always like to say, is a neutral tool. Uh, and then it is the users of those tools that determine the either good intention or bad intention outcomes that are derived from using the tool. And sometimes you can go and prevent the bad stuff. Um, you know, it's entirely reasonable that you can do it, but it's also impossible to get that number to be a zero. I think back to, like, you know, Mayor de Blasio, New York City, trying to go and enforce the jaywalking laws really strictly because you want to have zero jaywalking deaths. And it was a futile experiment because you're never going to get, you shouldn't be oriented to policies around zero-based outcomes. Now, when it comes to your question about the morality of it, I also think that it presents an opportunity to change how we're going and teaching kids, for example, um, with your example for papers in school. And we're already seeing this in higher ed being an experimentation where professors actually are offering assignments to their kids, their students, to go and use ChatGPT to produce an output for them on a based, you know, a series of questions, show the, you know, the input log in that conversation on all that, and then have the students go and fact check the ChatGPT outputs, right? And edit it accordingly and show the differences between the two products, right? So if you're good about this kind of stuff, I actually think that there's an enormous opportunity here to actually go and teach kids, our future leaders and generational leaders here, how to actually leverage and work complementary with this technology to actually unleash more potential for themselves. And in the process, understand the the positives and the limitations of that technology in a more hands-on way than what we currently have available to us right now. So I think that there's actually an enormous opportunity here to address some of those moral questions by rejiggering how we're having that conversation around AI and using it. Now, there's, of course, a dynamic here that I think does need to be addressed in relationship to areas where certain guardrails need to be in place. And I want to spend a little time talking about that after a brief time out. If you've just joined the conversation, visiting today with James Chernowski. He is a senior policy analyst in technology and innovation at Americans for Prosperity. You can get more information, by the way, online by going to americansforprosperity.org. That's Americans for Prosperity. Prosperity.org. When we come back, what about the notion of some guardrails being necessary to protect us from things like manipulation of information to intentionally, say, sway outcomes of an election, things of this nature, as well as the need to have some guardrails that may be 
prohibit the ability to manipulate for um, purposes of, uh, shall we say, illegal activities. We'll get to that part of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. James Chernowski has been gracious enough to hang out with us for a few more minutes. Policy analyst in technology and innovation at Americans for Prosperity. James, as our time winds down, there are some areas of concern where I think legitimate guardrails need to be put in place. And that is, for example, um, ways in which this can be used to manipulate people for illegal purposes. Or we've all seen rising concern over things like deep fakes where, you know, they can capture the voice print of somebody like me and get me to say, I will say crazy things, but that's kind of a daily occurrence. Well, over the top things <laughs> and, and the ability to do things like manipulate and sway elections and other types of outcomes. So to that degree, how does this need to be approached to make sure that it doesn't go beyond and and have the ability to to easily be harnessed for evil? Yeah, I think I think that that's where the, a very interesting conversation lies because obviously, uh, you know, I think a lot of people care about the integrity of our election system, and um, there are already existing laws that that go and you know handle some of this type of content. It's a very fine line to draw um, because because there is a nexus surrounding speech there, and while the First Amendment is not absolute, there are some limitations there. It doesn't. Because of the nexus around speech, we have to be careful if we're trying to craft rules around all of that. Um, you know, I think that this is something that technology and social media platforms have had to deal with in their own right, and it's very difficult uh, to go and strike that right balance there. So I'm not really sure what the right outcome looks like there, but there are already existing laws on the books that are federal crimes. Like, for example, if you were to go and, you know, use that deep technology to lie about an election date or an election location or something of that nature there's already existing laws on the book that cover that and then it's more about these companies having a collaborative relationship with the enforcement authorities to track down and and punish the person that is responsible if they lie within the borders of the united states and that's also an entirely separate problem that i just kind of highlighted there where it's like sometimes there's going to be you know foreign actors that might be doing it um, which means that it's going to be very difficult to tackle some of this because we can't bring justice to people that are outside our borders as easily um, because of those kinds of restrictions that are there. So I think that it's a very fascinating question um, that the technology, even as we're developing this technology for defense or that capacity, et cetera, on the flip side, we're also you know creating tools that can go and help us better identify and tackle those issues that come up with it too. It's not like deepfakes are suddenly new. Deepfakes have been around for a hot minute, um, and the technology that goes and identifies it is also there as well. And I think just understanding that we're operating in this broad digital world now, again, it comes back to an education issue. We have to do a really good job of reaching out to voters of all ages and demographics to make sure that they are aware of the fact that these kinds of things are out there and to always be looking for multiple sources to inform themselves so that they can be a better citizen when engaging in these kinds of critical processes like voting in an election. Bingo. And in my mind, you just hit the the nail right on the head that one of the positive outcomes, perhaps, of all of this can be that if it forces all of us uh, for ourselves personally and as we raise our children, for example, uh, to to fine tune our um, nonsense detectors and, and to be in a position where we just don't read what we see on the Web at face value and say, yeah, Facebook 
Facebook said it, that must be true and go run off with that, but rather to to engage in that critical thinking and and that sense of being able to to look at information provided and say, okay, just because it says so, is it necessarily true? You know, the, the old adage, got to be true, I'll run it on the internet. So maybe the positive side of all this can be is that is that if we come back to refining our critical thinking skills for ourselves and our children, there can be actually a positive side to all of this, even as we look at some of the potential risks involved. Looking at weighing the risk and rewards of things like artificial intelligence. Our conversation with James Chernowski, Senior Policy Analyst in Technology and Innovation at Americans for Prosperity. James, it's really been great to visit with you today, and I appreciate the time and the insights. More information available on the web at americansforprosperity.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.